If you can think back uh, as far enough as this time last year, um, you might remember at the end of 2016, one of the features of 2016 that was so remarkable uh, was the death of so many of people's heroes. Does anyone remember that last year? Um, David Bowie being a, a notable one, but there were a number of others uh, as well. And it's interesting because this year, probably, uh, we haven't seen as many kind of really cherished public figures die as what we did in 2016. That's not, or maybe we have, but we've just got used to it. I don't know. Yet the feature this year would not be maybe uh, the death of heroes, but maybe the death of the reputations of once heroes. I think that's been a, a massive feature uh, of this year. And um, I think at the beginning of the year, it started more with heroes of ages well gone by in the very long past people who once people would have said yes this guy or this lady's great now actually not so sure and so uh, anyone hands up anyone's heard of the roads must fall campaign anyone? okay uh, just a couple uh, oxford university statue of uh, cecil rhodes um, c colonist. It, it wasn't a test mineral, don't worry, you're okay. It's okay. So it's such a, such a, oh, anyway, um, uh, and there was lots of students saying, look, this guy should not have a statue at Oxford University. Across the world, that would have been cases of that. That was in uh, little 2016. It came over into uh, our country in 2017 as well. Uh, in um, America particularly, lots of universities and institutions named after Confederate generals like Robert E. Lee, uh, the guy behind the Confederate flag. Let's remember Dukes of Hazard. You remember Dukes of Hazard? Generally, yeah, okay, that guy. Um, well, not from Dukes of Hazard, but you know what I mean. Um, in fact, in August this year, there was a, a, ca a starts of a campaign uh, to get rid of Nelson's column, even in this, as uh, Nelson uh, probably wouldn't live up to many standards of virtue in the 21st century world. Okay, which sorry if that breaks anyone's picture of Admiral Nelson, but anyway. Um, so that was the beginning of the year. Obviously, the second half of the year came much more about the heroes of today. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, uh, the ex-Manchester City footballer Rubinho. Guys, who at the beginning of this year, many people said, look at that guy, very successful, whoa, uh, model of 21st century life in some ways. Then suddenly, whoa, we don't want to go near them with a barge pole. And it's funny that in the context of this year, uh, of these very flawed once heroes, fallen heroes, if you want to call them that, however you put that phrase, we've been looking at a sermon series on some very, very flawed heroes from a lot longer ago. And that, of course, is the book of Judges uh, in the Bible. And so far in this uh, book, we've had a load of guys uh, and one lady as well who've been raised up to uh, save Israel, deliver Israel in their time of need at different times. And uh, it became very quickly, uh, very, very clear, very quickly in this book, I hope you've seen, that these guys were not your traditional kind of uh, heroic role models. They had some significant flaws. But today's guy, I think, is the key in that regard. The one who fits most into the discussions of 2017, into these sort of characters up here, would be a guy called Samson. Okay? And I'm, uh, some of you will be aware of Samson's story. Uh, some of you might not be. I want to just retell his story uh, to you today. And just as a, a warning, it's going to take some time. We're dealing with S Judges 13 to Judges 16 uh, today. I'm not going to read you the whole lot. I'm just going to try to bring the story to life, give a few comments as we go along. But that's going to take the majority of what we're talking about today. And I just want to ask you a question as we go along. There's loads in this story, but this is the question I want you to ask. What, would, what do you do with Samson? And putting him in the light of like the discussion in 2017, what would you do with him if he was a modern figure? Let's make it concrete. If there was a statue of Samson in Birmingham city centre, would you call for it to be pulled down? If Samson was actually an actor and he was cast in a film and you were the director, would you call for his scenes to be reshot by someone else at the last minute? 
Okay, I just ask that question. So if you could be thinking of your verdict on Samson as we go through, let's get ready for this is, this is a great story. I tell you, this is good. I'm looking forward to this. I hope you are. Are you ready for Samson? Yeah, come on. It's, yeah, it's everything a story could need to be, but it's incredibly tricky for us as Christians as well, I, I think. But anyway, let's get in the fun. Let's get the fun out of the way first. Uh, Judges 13 uh, starts off in a way that we're very familiar with now in the book of Judges. Okay, uh, it says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them uh, for 40 years. Okay, this is how every Judges story has started in this book. Okay. But there's a difference now because usually something else happens now. After they did evil, God handed them over to ex-Midianites, Philistines, whoever it may be. Then next comes, and they cried out to the Lord for deliverance. We see that in every single story in one degree or another. That's not here. There's no, and then they repented, and then they cried out. It's just not in the story here. And this is a big deal. What the judges, how you see in judges, what the story has been as it goes along. The, all the judges pulls no punches. Things are getting worse and worse in Israel. They're not getting, the d- judges might do great things, but they're not rescuing the nation as they were hoped for. And by this point, they're not even crying out to God. They, they stopped trusting God for their deliverance. But in a sense, actually, I think they've become completely content to settle for their situation. They're no longer bothered. They can't be bothered about the fact that uh, they've got... Uh, the Philistines ruling over these, these Canaanites who they were told not to make peace with. Okay? The Israelites are at their lowest of the low. However, God still comes and brings them deliverance. Okay? And he does it uh, by sending an angel to a lady from the tribe of Dan who was unable to have children. And this is what uh, the angel said. Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Now, the beginning of this just seems like good modern kind of prenatal advice, isn't it? Don't drink while you're pregnant, young lady. Okay, But it gets a bit weird with this cutting hair Nazarite stuff. What's going on here? Well, two things. Firstly, note this, he will begin to rescue uh, the Israel from the Philistines. This guy's going to be another deliverer in the mold of the others. Okay, fair enough, we've got that. But what's the stuff with his hair and alcohol and that? Well, it refers to this thing. It says he will be uh, dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. Now, Nazarites are talked about in the Mosaic law in the book of Numbers. And basically, for Nazarites, usually it was a Nazarite vow that someone would take. And so somebody may decide they wanted to set themselves apart to God for a specific reason for a specific period of time okay and if you wanted to take that vow you go to temple make the vow and what you do there'd be three symbols of that vow to show you're still in basically and they would be no booze no touching dead bodies and no having your hair cut Okay, there's reasons for all that. You can go back to numbers for those. I'm not going to get onto them today. But those were the three things. A little bit about no unclean food as well. But let's stick with three. It's easy to remember. Okay, so you've got this deliverer promised. He's going to have these rules for his life. And lo and behold, uh, Judges 13, 24, her son was born. And when her son was born, she named him Samson. And the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Okay, so here we have it. We've got to almost the end of the book of Judges. It's been complete car crash of disasters for Israel from start to finish uh, so far. But now we've got the, the, the real guy is coming. You've got a new breed of judge. Okay? He's, he's promised before he's even born. Okay? None of the other judges have had that. This time of year, we know 
that symbolizes something quite special as you'll find <laughs> as we'll be thinking about the nativity stories and stuff so you got that he's he's uh he's got these special rules for his life that's kind of intriguing uh he's also blessed by god and full of the spirit and so we come to the end of judges 30 and we think great the turnaround we're ready for the big turnaround we're ready for the hero and in that case we're ready to be incredibly disappointed okay because this guy is not going to be exactly what you expect. Now, there's lots of twists and turns in the story, but I want you guys to do one thing for me, okay? And that is I want you to be the Nazarite vow checker for the story, okay? Just, uh, this will help us. We've got the three pitches, no booze, no dead bodies, uh, no touching dead bodies, uh, no cutting hair, okay? If at any point in the story, Samson breaks one of these things or comes close to breaking them, or you think, it isn't a very good idea for someone who said they won't do those things, I just want you to shout, you can do it in any way you like, Nazarite vow at me, okay? Okay, so just, oh, there's lots going on, but just keep you focused. So let's do it all together. Let's imagine, oh, Samson's going to get his hair cut. That would never happen in the story, obviously. But let's imagine that happen. What do we all do? <laughs> yes, good, fantastic. Right, now, so Samson, uh, Judges 14 begins, and things don't start well, okay? Straight off, the first thing Samson does is he goes to marry a Philistine woman, Okay. And uh, the reasoning is in Judges 14, verse 3. He says this. What, why do you want to do that? His parents say, well, she is right in my eyes, is the uh, translation, uh, is what the um, uh, kind of original Hebrew kind of phrase is. She is right in my eyes. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, the Old Testament, firstly, is incredibly clear that when people in the people of God marry people outside of the people of God, it is a hair's breadth away from them then turning away from God and serving other gods. It's always a no-no. But even more ominous is this phrase, she is right in my eyes. Compare that for a moment with the uh, diagnosis of the whole book of Judges that's given in the last verse. In Judges 21, um, uh, verse 25, this is what the author says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So all the chaos we've seen in Judges, what's the basic problem? The basic problem is everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Samson comes along, the deliverer, the mighty one, the one they've hoped for. And what's the first thing he does? I want to marry her. But God's law says this. No, it doesn't matter. She's right in my eyes. He's just like everybody else. That's the point right from the start. Oh, no, we hope this guy to be better. But no. So what happens next? Well, his parents agree with his plan. And so uh, Samson goes to Timnah, where the lady lives, to put his marriage plans into action. And on the way, he is confronted by a lion trying to eat him, as lions often do on these sort of occasions. Now, I don't know what went through Samson's mind. Oh, no, before I got married and everything, all my plans, maybe oh, I'm being judged for just doing what I want to do. But I don't know what it was. But then this happens, incredible thing. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. What happens? Did he speak in tongues to the lion, I wonder? No, he didn't. He ripped the lion I imagine he grabbed the jaws, that's how you do it, and split him in part. But anyway, the lion is ripped to shreds you know, before his eyes, okay? Uh, he kills the lion by the power of the Spirit. And we have this sort of sense. The Spirit of the Lord is working on Samson in a weird way. He's giving Samson kind of strength, which is amazing. So anyway, lion dead, left by the road, okay? Samson goes over to Timnar, schmoozes a little with his lady. She likes him, he likes her. Things are moving ahead nicely. They agree the date. He goes back home. A while later, comes back to Timnah, and on the way over, he spots the carcass of the lion. Just there. It's been left there. No one's wanted to touch it. But an amazing thing. Uh, a swarm of bees has nested inside the carcass of the lion and made a hive. Okay, And there's honey in the hive. And so uh, Samson leans down and takes some of the honey, 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have a buzzer. Ian, any comments? Any, any? I heard in the front row. Anyone else want to? Oh, what's, what's the problem here? It's a carcass of a dead lion. First of all, it's unclean food. That, that's not quite on the list, but anyway. But now, technically in numbers, it is dead bodies of people. But surely you're not meant to be eating at the carcass of a dead lion if you're a Nazarite. Anyway, he does. He loves it. That's great. He moves on. Okay. So he goes to the... Um, to the f- uh, to Timnah, and he declares a feast, uh, the kind of customary thing for the festivities uh, of a wedding. Just to give you some information that might be helpful to you, the, the, the actual word for feast we get in our Bibles is actually a drinking party, okay? So, yes, I, even, I thought you might pick up on that one. You've got a Nazarite organizing a drinking party. Now, did he drink any booze? It doesn't tell us explicitly, but this is, this is pretty shaky territory for this guy, and he's only just started as well, Okay. Um, so he organizes the party, he, he, um, uh, he, that, uh, that all goes ahead, and he decides, getting into the feast, uh, that he's not just going to get himself a wife, he might as well make a few quid while he's at it as well. So while everyone's in high spirits at the drinking party, he sets them uh, a bet, he makes a bet with them, so with the Philistines, he says, look guys, I'll give you a riddle, and if you answer my riddle, um, you can, uh, I'll give you 30 garments of clothing. And if you can't answer my riddle, obviously you give me 30 garments of clothing. Now, I think the Philistines were probably high on the drinking party. We think, yeah, brilliant, fantastic. But as he told them the riddle, their faces fell. They was, this is tough. This is a difficult riddle. What are we going to do? So they come up with a plan. They think that we'll go to his wife and uh, we'll get her to spill the beans. And in fact, they tell her to, to, to kind of, it's a motivational fact to say, if you don't get the information, we'll burn you and your father to death. Okay? Charming sort of approach. So she's in a bit of a compromised position and she, she gives in to the demands of the Philistines. She nags Samson until ultimately he tells her the, the answer to the riddle. She then spills the beans to the Philistines uh, and they come and they win the bet. Now, as you'll find out shortly, Samson is not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? He sometimes does some very stupid things. However, he sees through this straight away. He knows exactly what's happened and he's not uh, entirely happy about it. So he decides to start a cycle of revenge that continues for pretty much the rest of the story. I'll, I'll give you the very short version of what happens on both sides. So uh, they've done this thing to get the, uh, they've threatened his wife. So he does, on his side, he gets the clothes, but he does it by taking them from the bodies of a load of Philistines who he happens to make dead in the process. Okay, yeah, okay, yes, because notice through all of this, although it's not mentioned, by killing people, which will be a feature of Samson's career, surely at some point you have to touch a dead body. I mean, how do you, I'm, oh, you're not quite dead, oh, that's fine. I mean, how would you do that? So he kills these 30 guys and nicks their clothes. On the other side, the wife, the Philistine wife responds by giving Samson's wife to Samson's best mate. Samson not happy. So Samson returns and retaliates by burning a whole load of Philistines' fields down. Using a novel method, using foxes and torches. I will let you look at the passage to explore that more. Okay, Philistines' fields burnt down. Philistines are not happy. They're not so creative in their vendettas. So they just go back to what they said before. Burn his uh, wife and his wife's uh, dad to death. Okay, Samson's not having any of this, declares vengeance, slaughters, he just says slaughters a whole load of them. As far as I feel, I think the whole load of them might be my paraphrase, but that's basically what happens. Okay, on the other side, you can see how the cycle is going. The Philistines are then like, right, we need to get this guy. They send their entire army out to get Samson. Okay, so you see the cycle back and forth, all of this stuff. Um, And the army comes out. Now, the complication here is Samson has gone to hide in the territory of the tribe of Judah. Okay, tribe of Judah is an Israelite tribe, but it's not just any Israelite tribe. 
This is the tribe that King David is going to come from. King David, yay or nay? Yay, hero, okay? This is the easier one for you. This is the tribe that Jesus will come from. Yay, okay, good tribe. Go back a little bit, okay? Judah at the beginning of Judges is the tribe that actually obeys God and takes the land. They're at the forefront of the only good stuff that Israel really do in this book, like uh, collectively, which is in chapter one. They take most of the land they're given. This is a faithful tribe. Okay, got that? So, the Philistine army comes to them. The people of Judah kind of go, why have you come to attack us? They go, we've got no problem with you. We want Samson. He's in your land. He's an absolute pain. He's causing havoc. We're going to kill him. Okay? So, you expect at this point, oh, last, Samson will have at least some support in fighting the Philistines. No, actually, that's not what happens. The Ju- tribe of Judah, the good tribe in Israel, capitulate completely, and they go to find Samson, and they say to him, Samson, we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. Their exact quote is this. They say to him, this is their rationale. Don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? Now, just, just think about this for a second. The beginning of this story, the Israelites aren't crying out for help. Now we find their most faithful tribe have become so comfortable with the status quo that they prefer to hand over God's appointed judge to the enemy than to even cause any problem with the enemy. This is how low they've sunk. Anyway, back to the story. Samson agrees, but on one condition. He says, look, hand me over all you want, but just as long as you don't kill me, that's all I ask. So they go, okay, fair enough. Tie him up with lots of ropes, take him off to the Philistines. So the Philistines' army's waiting there. There's at least a thousand people. You never guess what happens, would you? <laughs> Samson poosh, breaks out of the, the ropes. And I imagine the moment he's thinking, oh, there's only foxes and torches lying about. No, that worked before. Ah, oh, I've found something, though. Donkey jawbone, I'll have that. Grab it. You, you guys have much sharper than I expect. I'm going to do a test at each side. I think you've got this straight away. It's a dead donkey's head, okay? Not what a Nazarite should be touching, but he decides to make a thousand people dead with it, okay? Kills a thousand people with the donkey jawbone. Obviously, Nazarite vow, yep, yep, he's killed them all dead. Okay, after a br- brief fling with a prostitute in Gaza, I don't even know where that fits on there, but I think this is long gone from <laughs> Samson's thought. And uh, an incident involving the demolition of the gates of the Philistine capital city, which is quite entertaining in its own right. But anyway, we come to the end of Samson's colourful story. And it involves his womanising once again. And he sees another lady he likes. And this is a lady uh, famously called... I thought you'd probably have heard of her. <laughs> Owen will now sing. Um, now, like his first wife, uh, the Philistines instantly see Samson's weakness, and they, they, they kind of come along to Delilah and say, look, we want to know the secret of this guy's strength. We've noticed this guy's got something else going on. You don't just do things like this on your own. What's the secret? And we will pay you richly for the information. And Delilah thinks, well, it's a pretty good deal. So she goes for it, and she asks Samson straight out, what's the secret of your strength? And so Samson makes up some tale. He says about something to do with seven, seven fresh thongs. If you tie them around me, I will become as weak as any other person. She does it, it fails, okay? So Delilah comes back again and says, look, come on, tell me, tell me what's the real secret. He makes up another fanciful story. She tries it, it failed. Delilah comes back again. Tell me, he makes up another story. She tries it, it fails. And at this point, uh, Delilah really turns on uh, the tears. She really turns on the the kind of uh, twisting of the arm. You said you loved me. How? How could I be with someone who can't trust me? That sort of thing. I'm imagining. Was that, that so good? Guys, is that good? <laughs> Have we seen that? Ladies, is that good? I don't know. I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing there. Anyway, we're going to get the picture. 
And Samson eventually gives in uh, and tell her, tells her what he thinks is the truth. Uh, verse uh, se- 17 of chapter 16, he says this, My hair has never been cut, he confessed. Well, yes, you've got it. It's not quite happened yet, but you're ready. For <laughs> you're too sharp. For I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. So Delilah waits till he's gone to sleep and cuts off his hair. Yes, thank you, Verity. You can have that one. Um, and then she summons the Philistines to storm in. Samson hears the noise. He leaps up from, his, from the bed ready to fight. But then one of those tragic verses in the whole Bible, Judges 16.20 says this, but he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Wow. The tragedy in that statement. See, I think Samson was kind of right and wrong in what he told Delilah because his strength had never been in his hair. It was never the hair that was the issue. The strength came from God and God being with him. If he cut his hair off and God had stayed with him, he would have still been strong. It didn't even come from his Nazarite vow, because we know, as we've proved as we've gone along, he left that behind pretty much in chapter 14. He's not been caring about that for the whole time. No, his strength came from God, and God in his grace choosing to be with him. And when God in his grace, enough's enough, Samson, I'm off. Well, therefore, he did become as weak as any other person. And the Philistines have their moment, finally, and they take it to full effect. They gouge out Samson's eyes. Uh, They uh, put him in bronze shackles, and they put him to uh, grinding grain in prison. Samson is finished. Or is he? Dun, dun, dun. The denouement of our story occurs at the temple of Dagon. The Philistines are going wild, praising their God, singing, Our God has given us victory over our enemy Samson. They decide to rub Uh, add insult to injury they wheel out Samson blinded and chained to perform like a chimp before them and they're all cheering they're going wild and everything after the the degradation of this performance he must have known loads of these he's uh, just he's just left to one side and he's actually lent up against the pillar that holds up the whole of Dagon's temple okay and finally at last humiliated defeated blinded Samson does something he's never done. He cries out humbly to God. He has prayed before, but there was no humility in that prayer. This is a humble prayer. It's not perfect, as you're going to see, but it is a humility. It says this, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. And so while the Philistines are praising their God and getting drunk, Unnoticed by anyone, Samson leans against the middle pillar and he asserts his weight on it and the whole temple starts to shake. And as he shouts, let me die with the Philistines, the entire building collapses, killing all the people, including Samson, inside and all the people on the roof, therefore killing more Philistines by dying than he had by living. Actually, in the bigger picture, striking a decisive blow against one of the Israelites' key enemies that in just a couple of generations, Saul and David will pick up from there and finish off the job. Okay? And there we have the story of Samson. So, question. As you kind of process all that, what do you do with Samson? What's your verdict on Samson? Go back to the, kind of the images I said before. Let's imagine Samson's got a statue set up in Bearwood. Would you campaign to have it taken down? What would you do to the Facebook protest? Would you put a like to that thing? 
Sampson, well, at the University of Birmingham was named Sampson's University. Would you write to the Chancellor and ask for a, a slightly less aggressive <laughs> role model to be put forward uh, for this such a house of learning? You see, in many ways, this guy is surely as deeply flawed as a Cecil Rhodes or a Robert E. Lee or a Kevin Spacey. What do we do with him? I'm not going to get a, a public show of hands on what we do with him because I'm going to drive us straight to a verdict that is found elsewhere and it's a verdict that the Bible gives to Samson. And it's a verdict, I think, that, uh, I'll be honest, I would have preferred this wasn't there, if, I, if I'm being honest. But it is there and we've got to do something with it. And it's found in Hebrews chapter 11 and uh, it's included, and this probably gives the game away a little bit, in a list of heroes of faith that Samson's founded, okay? So after name-checking all the great and the good of Jewish history, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, okay? We hear this, this is what the writer writes. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, I think you've got a slide for this, Josh. Ooh, whoa, just white, it's gone, very odd. Okay, I'll read it in an even better diction. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Listen to this one. Were made strong out of weakness. I wonder if that's Samson's in there. Were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. It's not just Samson. There's some of our rogues gallery from judges have made it as well. Now, when we see a list like that, whether we see it or we hear it, um, I think it's easy to kind of freak out at that point and go, whoa, what's happening here? Is the writer of Hebrews vindicating everything that these guys did? He's saying Gideon's idolatry was okay. Barak's cowardice. Jephthah, who I think you haven't had Jephthah yet, have you? Spoiler alert. Jephthah's murder of his daughter. Is that cool? Samson's pretty much everything he did. Are those things all right? No, that's not what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. Remember, Judges is very clearly written. There's, there's no cover-up operation here. It's saying very clearly, look, this guy has some very significant flaws and is a picture of the moral degradation of the whole of the nation. There's no pu punches pulled uh, there. But listen, the Bible refuses to be as black and white uh, as we often are. It doesn't deal in goodies and baddies. Uh, you've got to understand that when you read Scripture. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying this, despite these guys' flaws, there is still something heroic in them. There's something there. It might be small, but there's something that's good. And we can't just write them off as purely cautionary tales. So the obvious question to finish then is, what is good about Samson? What, what kind of shred of heroic faith can we see in Samson? And I'd like to point out two things that I think this story we need to latch hold of while learning the cautionary lessons of the others. I'm not saying Samson was brilliant in all ways, but saying I think there are two things very clearly here we can see. And the first one is this. Ultimately, Samson recognized his dependence on God. Ultimately, Samson recognized his dependence on God. Now, this is contrasted most by the fact that for most of his life, this is exactly what he didn't do, and it was actually his downfall. Okay? God gave him everything. When it came to these strong exploits he did, most of the time it's explicit. How, why did he do it? The Spirit of the Lord filled him, and therefore he did it. It couldn't be clearer, but Samson doesn't give God, pre uh, God credit for that. 
Ultimately, he presumes that the secret of his strength is himself. That's the whole Delilah thing. He has cut my hair. He knows she's going to cut his hair. But what he's really saying is, actually, I'm cutting off all link between my strength and God. It doesn't matter. You can do what you want to me because my secret of my strength is me. That's what it is. He was completely self-dependent. But then, as so often happens, having been brought to the lowest possible point, even with no eyes in his skull, he sees it. It's, it's not a perfect prayer. I'll give it that. It's still mainly about vengeance, and it still has no repentance in it. I don't know if you noticed that about Samson's final prayer. But he does recognize who God is. This is what he says. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. You might think, well, that's a, just a tiny little phrase. I think that's what God was looking for. Sovereign Lord, remember me again. There's humility there. It's not a demand. When he prays earlier in Samson, there's a demand. Hey, I'm your strong man. You've got to help me. Okay? Now it's remember me. He's saying that because he knows how forgettable he is at this point. How God has no, there's no strings attached. There's no kind of obligation on God to act here. But even more importantly, there's a statement of faith in just how he talks to God. Sovereign Lord. He's never spoken like that before. Sovereign, you're in charge of everything. Lord, you're in charge of me. Jesus said that we only need faith as small as a mustard seed to do great things for God. Samson's final prayer may have just had that mustard seed in it, but you know what? It was enough. Actually, the same is true today. I want to ask a question for you guys here for you today there are any number of you today you might be here this morning feeling utterly compromised in your walk with God you might have written yourself off completely ever serving God with any kind of effect and that might be because you've spent so long in your life ignoring God you might not call yourself a Christian or religious you've lived your life entirely independent of him and that could be your reason could be different though it could be you've been a Christian for many years but you know those years have been spent on the back seat passively, just turning up, you know, having it as part of your life, kind of a safety mechanism, just in case something bad happens. But, you know, it's, it's very passive, and you're on the back seat. And that's been so long, I think, I could never change that. Could be years of hidden sin. Actually, people might think of you differently, might think, oh, that person's really going for it. But you know, actually, what's really going on. You know those things that you've never dealt with, and you just left there to fester, and they're getting worse and worse, and you're still keeping them closed and behind closed doors, but you know it. You know it when you go to sleep. You know it when you wake up in the morning, and you're very aware of it right now. Well, I want to ask you one question. I want you to take all of those things out of your mind and push them to one side if you can. And I just want to ask this, this question, and this is the key question. Can you humbly recognize your dependence on God? Can you do it? Can you say, like Samson said, Sovereign Lord, remember me again? And you might struggle to answer because you've got such mixed motives in the whole thing. Might think, even if I say yes, what will I do? Well, have a look at Samson. Talk about Mr. Mixed Motives. Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember again. Get me revenge for my eyes. He's <laughs> like, what? What's up with this guy? No, mixed motives, don't worry about the mixed motives. We do worry about them later. But for the moment, don't worry about that. Can you humbly recognize your dependence on God? I'd encourage you to echo Samson's prayer this morning and keep on echoing it because if God's grace is enough for Samson, it's definitely enough for you. Second thing about Samson I think we see that's really good is his refusal to live at peace with the powers that be. He refused to live at peace with the powers that be. This is the one I, I think probably we struggle with the most because 
however clear the book of Judges is on Samson's flaws, his violence against the Philistines is meant to be seen as a good thing. And that's tough for us. Yes, it's often completely reckless. And yes, it's usually carried out from very selfish motives. But the early reader of this book would have come away with, with, the, the, with the statement, well, let's face it though, at least he did take up the fight, didn't he? At least he knew who the enemy was and he did something about it. You see, Judges 14.4 gives us an insight to what God's doing at this time. God only appears a couple of times, really, behind the scenes in the passage. But this is the big one. We see what God's up to. And it says this, Judges 14.4. The Lord was at work creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. Now, Samson, he clearly didn't go about that work in the right spirit or with the right methods but his aggressive defiance of Philistine rule was actually following the, the will of God. It's, it's, a, it's funny to think of. Now, the thing in this story, that's so me we're meant to come away with like, who are the baddies? Again, goodies, baddies don't really work in the story as regards Israel. Are the Israelites, the people of Judah, the people who are so compromised and I can't really be bothered anymore about this. We, we don't really care. Let's not upset the apple cart here. They're the ones that come off badly. Samson does a whole load of things wrong completely, but at least he knew who his enemy was. At least he stood up to them. And this is incredibly difficult to get hold of because, and I <laughs> need to say it's very bro right, okay, rightly so, we have developed a deep aversion to violent conquest, okay? Just if you have developed a deep aversion to violent conquest, just want to say, please keep that deep aversion. <laughs> please don't think about changing that at any point soon because Jesus had a deep aversion to violent conquest. And therefore, the result of that is fighting for us becomes a, a completely universally negative word. Okay? Those of you who've got kids who've ever gone to primary school, you get that first day, dress them up in their uniform, they stand there looking sweet, you put it on Facebook or WhatsApp or whatever, and as they go out there looking sweet, <laughs> what's the advice? Say? What should they not do at school? Okay? Don't get in any fights. Particularly, I'm thinking of this for Rex. In a company, I should start this now. Don't get in any fights. Because fights are bad. It's the worst thing at school if you hear your kid's in a fight. That's the worst thing. And uh, fighting, rightly so, we see that as pretty much universally negative. The problem with that is that when we split that out from the attitude behind it that often is very positive. Because as Christians, we're called to be fighters. Not with our fists or not with weapons, but definitely in our spirits. Paul says this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.12. He says, fight the good fight of faith. What, that's for Paul, that was be a Christian. That's what being a Christian is. If we want to follow Jesus, we've got to do the same thing. We've got to be fighters. And if we're fighters, it means we don't make peace with the powers. Now, I just want to give two examples of powers that I think we have a real temptation in our country at this time to make peace with, that actually we should have some form of fighting spirit towards. I want to ask you, have you made peace with the powers of greed and materialism that exist in our generation? Greed and materialism, they're a power. Have you made peace with those powers? Another power in our uh, day and age, there'd be many more I imagine, but this is a big one. Have you made peace with the powers of self-determination that exist in our nation? By, by that, what I mean is this. By self-determination, I mean this feeling that says, I define myself. I am in charge of who I am. I'm in charge of what I do. And there is no authority greater than me to tell me any different. 
Have you made peace with that power? I'll say a couple of things about what that means and what that doesn't mean. See, how do we make peace with those powers? Well, I think the first thing we do is we rationalize them. And so you look in your Bible and you think, well, look, this is clearly what God's Word says, and this is what culture says, but you know what? It's not that bad living in a, an age where money is God. It's not that bad. I mean, we have some benefits from this, and, you know, it, what's the alternatives? We're kind of stuck here anyway. Uh, so, you know what? I'm going to find a way to just merge these and just make peace with the whole system of greed and materialism. Or alternatively, with self-determination, we do similar thing of saying, yeah, I know that the Bible says there's a God and we should deny ourselves and serve him and he's the authority. But, you know, there are reasons why it's probably best that we follow our heart and just be ourselves. And, you know what, I'm just going to marry the two. I'm going to rationalize it in my mind. And it's just, I've just said that's no longer uh, an issue. That is, just to be clear on what that is, that's exactly what the tribe of Judah do in the story of Samson. They say, oh, we don't, Samson, come on. Th- they are our rulers. They rule us. We, we don't want to cause a problem. The state is closed. The state is closed. Why, why do you think you could change? You're one guy. I'm handing you over to them. Have you made peace with those powers? Have you made peace with powers that God is saying, in my will, I'm fighting against those powers? That's not what we're called to do. But how do we then fight I think for many, when we talk about fighting in this sense, we think of a kind of activism. Uh, I think we think of a public fight, a public voice, particularly now that social media and that, you can make your voice very clear very quickly uh, in, in that sort of sense. And um, I just want to say, I, I'm not going to, I don't think we're going straight there. I, I would say this, that's a whole other, that topic there is massively relevant to us and it's very important, but it needs some s- good treatment. And if you want to ask questions about, well, how do we do that? Please write in uh, any sermon. If you've got any questions, we'll try to deal with that on the blog. But I'm not dealing with that simply for this reason, partly because we don't have time. Secondly, because that's not the first fighting ground. That's not our battleground we go to first. Where's that? How do we then fight? We fight in here. That's where we fight. You want to fight against greed and materialism. Actually, the first thing to do is not to burn down a bank, okay? It's to fight in your heart and to say, like Paul said in Romans 8, by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body. I ask you, are you fighting in your life against those strongholds? Are you saying, I'm going to fight the expectations put on me by friends, even by family, just to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate and put all my safety and security in possessions and my status there and actually say that God, that my God is money. We fight in our hearts for that, okay? The other side of things, it's not uh, to, to fight against self-determination. is isn't necessarily to go on a Twitter rant or condemn this individual or this individual, or even to lose your job unnecessarily, okay? Starts in your heart, starts here. If you feel strongly about those things, what do you do? You go into your heart and say, where's the area in my life where I'm trying to define myself? Where's the area in my life where it's idolatry, as we've been talking all through? Actually, I want to make myself God. No, God, you can't touch that. You can touch that, 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 and that, but not that, because I'm in charge of that. We fight there. That's what we fight. We set the fight. We say, no, I'm not standing for that. I'm going to be radical on that one. Got a, heard a story from a friend the other day uh, about a friend of his who was, um, uh, he was uh, struggling with pornography, looking at pornography on his computer. And he tried lots of different techniques and strategies, and it wasn't working. And uh, one day, he's there with his computer, he's failed again. And what he did, he just suddenly flew off the handle, and he picks up a golf club that's in his room, and he smashes his computer to pieces with the golf club. <laughs> 
Let me ask you a question, just an immediate response. Is that a wise stewardship of his resources right there? Is that even going to necessarily fix the problem? Probably no to both questions. But you know what? That's the spirit that I think God wants us to take from Samson when it comes to sin in our lives. Not to other people, but how serious are we about fighting against the sin and temptation in our lives? Samson wouldn't make force with, uh, peace with the powers, neither should we. So just, just to close and round up, I just want to underline one thing and tie things together, if, if that's okay. And um, I just want to say with all these things, as we, we do them, I, again, and I've said this, but I want to say it again, please be aware that your motives will never be perfect. That you're probably going to get it wrong from time to time. When I look at Samson, uh, I do scratch my head at his sort of willful selfishness and pride. And I can see, you can see his faults every step of the way. They're all there for us. But what happens is then I look at those and I think, Samson, why? Why am I preaching on Samson? This guy's hard. And then what happens is then I suddenly realize, ah, hold it up. It's a mirror, isn't it? I look at myself. I see I'm just the same as him. John tells us, 1 John 5, 19, that this world is under the control of the evil one. This world is under the control of the evil one. And yeah, we, we've been taken out of the world, but you know what? However much this side of uh, Jesus coming back, we're out, we're still kind of in. We're still complicit. We're, we've still got blood on our hands in all of these things. But every evil we see in the world, we look inside, we see a reflection of it in our hearts. Our very best things we do are often tainted with our very worst things. We're just like Samson. And in a year like this, when people have been so eager to accuse and condemn public figures of the past and present, I think we need to be really, really careful. Because you know what? It might be right for you to join the voices and decry some of the wickedness done in the past and the present. It might be right for you to do that. I'm not saying it isn't. It could be correct. Because some of these guys have done terrible things. But if you feel you do need to do there, it's imperative that you do something else first. And that's this. You've got to recognize that we're all pretty much the same. We've all fallen. We've all gone along with the spirit of our age. We're all Harvey Weinstein. We're all Kevin Spacey. We're all Cecil Rhodes. We're all Samson. And we will never be truly restored until Jesus comes again. And the question is then, what do we do in the meantime when we are such a bundle of contradictions and failings but are trying to do the right thing for God? Well, we do the two things I said, I think. We put our faith in our sovereign Lord and we fight the enemies that surround us. And if we do those things, maybe one day, imperfect as our efforts will be, someone will be able to say this. And what more shall I say? <coughs> For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Johnny, Milorad, Ali, Ian, Helen, Anna, Steve. Put your name in there who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. I want to highlight that. Were made strong out of weakness. If you're feeling weak today, come to the God of grace, who came mighty in war, put foreign armies to fl flight, 